0: If you have a Bible, though, go ahead and turn it to 1 John. 1 John's in uh, the back of your Bibles. You've got Revelation, Jude, 3rd, 2nd, 1 John. Okay, Just keep going to your left until you hit 1 John. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, that's cool. It's in your order of worship. If you don't own a Bible, there's like 7 or 8 on the back table. We'd love to give that to you. Don't leave here without it. Um, we, we think it's really important not just to have a Bible, uh, but to actually follow along while... While I'm talking, so that you know, you can see, Lord willing, that uh, Rick's not making this stuff up, okay? So, let me, let me get us into this time. We can imagine, uh, I, I would think, that the first century church, the church during the first century of our era, uh, would be a pretty crazy place, right? Uh, Christians, uh, despite popular opinion, were about the most oppressed minority you can imagine. Uh, they were tortured during, not, maybe not necessarily during the first century, although some were, they were killed uh, for their faith. But in the first few centuries of the Christian church, they were tortured uh, terribly um, for no other reason than that they, they called someone else king, besides Caesar. Uh, they called Jesus king. But the crazy thing is, a lot of the conflicts that were going on in the, in the early church, things like cultural irrelevance, fractures because of different personalities that people liked, Or didn't like. Uh, Teaching that led people away from Jesus. That's really the same stuff we're dealing with today. It's not any different. First century, 21st century, seems to be about the same. And so John, the writer of this epistle, is writing to help the church be certain about what it had heard and to give them courage in the face of all of the craziness. Maybe it's something we need, too. So last week, if you were here, we talked about how, um, we, we talked about the difference between Christianity, true Christianity, and its substitutes, because there are a lot of substitutes. Lots of substitutes. There were in John's day, there are during our day. Day, uh, Substitutes of people who claim Jesus for their cause, but are completely disconnected from anything, or at least the substance of what he said. And so John said, if you remember, that there were some who proved, some in the church who proved they actually weren't part of the church because they left it, that if they were part of it, they would never have left it. Uh, which is a little confusing, I'll, I'll just direct you back to that podcast, uh, it may, might help. But this week he let, he uh, hits on the other side of that. What do we do to stay? What do we do to abide? So if you have your place, we're in John chapter 2, if you'd stand in honor of God's word, that's our habit here. Uh, if you can, I'm going to be reading verse 26 in John 2 to the end of the chapter, which is verse 29, it's only three verses. As we do this, I want to remind us, uh, if you're a Christian, or if you're not, it's probably good for you to hear too. God's Word, the Bible, is not something that we chose for us. As a matter of fact, if you're anything like me, there was a time in your life, and maybe you can remember this, where you thought this was the biggest load of bunk you'd ever heard in your life. I remember that. But then something happened, and God completely changed us. And so, uh, as we hear it, let's hear it today as those who are under its call. This is God's word. I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true, and is no lie. Just as it has taught you, abide in him. And now, little children, abide in him, so that when he appears, we may have confidence, and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. It's God's word for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Father, open our hearts. There's a lot of people in this room. And some of us are here, and we're not even really sure why. <laughs> we don't believe any of this. Some of us uh, are here, and we've been going to a church for most of our lives, and it just kind of bores us. Others of us, Lord, are needy and and hurting, and some of us are just joyful and excited and wanting to hear. And so we need to hear from you. Would you open our hearts and speak to us? Would you let your gospel go deep? Would you uh, let the seed fall on good soil this morning, as your parable teaches us? And not on the road or in the rocky soil or in soil with weeds. But let it bear fruit. Fruit for salvation. Uh, we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. So when I was like six ish, I think it was six. It's a long time ago. When I was like six, our family got our first video game system. It was an Atari, Atari 2600. I believe we had pong tank battle, uh, Frogger, you know, the pitfall awesome stuff in eight bit wonder. Um, But soon, not very long after that, the Atari was eclipsed. It was eclipsed by this upstart Japanese company called Nintendo. I got my first Nintendo system when I was like nine. Super Mario Brothers. One, two, and three. Awesome. Uh, Final Fantasy. Tecmo Bowl. Right? Bo Jackson. Can never stop him. Awesome. But then that got old, too. When I was like 14, I got a Super Nintendo. Street Fighter. Mario Kart. Hours of play on that thing. But then when I got to college, there was the PlayStation. And then the PlayStation 2. And then the PlayStation 3 like a year later. And then you had the Xbox and the Xbox 360 and now the Xbox One. And then if you throw in for my own personal story, some bit of... PC gaming that you went in the middle of that with its countless upgrades that you can never keep up with because the games are always uh, close to the edge of the hardware. See, here's the thing. It was never enough to just have the old system, was it? It's like once the Nintendo came out, who wants to play Pitfall? Who wants to play Pitfall? They like, weren't like, who wants to do that? It was good for a while, but we wanted the new. We wanted the novel. Because we as a people don't like the old. We don't like the, the, the old stuff, the classic things. Although now, of course, you can't buy the NES classic anymore. It sells out before, anyway. But that's, that's, not, that's neither here nor there. Uh, we, we, we don't like the old. We want the new. We want the shiny. We're kind of like that with everything. We're kind of like that even with our faith, if we're being honest. Every year, it seems like we hear some new insight, some new discovery. That has never been said before in 2,000 years of the history of the church. And this will revolutionize your faith. Just take, buy my book, Hear Jesus Calling, whatever it is. Often enough, though, these fall aside quickly. Because you see, some of the problem is our thought that there has got to be more to Christianity than the gospel, right? There's got to be more. This morning, John's going to help us see what it means to not wander away from the faith by not only sticking to what we've known, but by sticking to whom we've known. So we're going to look at this in two ways. There's an outline in your bulletin. We do outlines around here. That's like the Presbyterian Amen when you're looking down and signing things because we're boring and not very vocal. But if you want to be vocal, we'd love that. Uh, but we, we do. We have an outline down there. If that's helpful to you, we're going to look at this in two ways. We're going to look at staying to old paths, and we're going to look at staying with the path maker. Sticking with the old paths and sticking with the path maker, okay? Let's start by uh, just kind of reviewing where we left off last week. Some of you will remember that John, at the end of the passage last week, the one right above this, right, verse 25, he says, Remain in that which you heard from the beginning. And if you remain in what you heard, you will remain in the Son and in the Father. So John was talking about those who had left the faith, If you've been a Christian long enough, you know how this works because it does happen. It's awful. It's not something we ever want to see. But it does happen. Uh, People leave the faith. And and he hits there how to stay in it by remaining in what you heard. And that's what he's going to reinforce this week. And he begins by hitting the depth of knowledge. Look at verses 26 and 27 if you can. He says, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Now pause there for a minute. Remember that this church... Um, is being upset. It's being upset by, by, um, by teaching, teachers who are coming in and saying that Jesus wasn't really human. He was some kind of angelic being or some kind of uh, like divine being, but not human because God and humanity, they, don't, they can't really come together. That's demeaning to God. That's what they would say. That, that Jesus wasn't really human, didn't really die, and he didn't really need to That what was important to Jesus was his teaching, the words that he said, right? Does this sound familiar? Some of this is going to sound familiar to you because you're like, I thought that's what is important. Actually, not so much. That what Jesus' uh, teaching was to do was to kind of help us kind of transcend our current conditions so that we can escape our bodies, which of course God doesn't care about, so it doesn't really matter what you do in them. And this was causing a... Big problem, because if God doesn't care what you do in your body, it doesn't really matter about things like biblical morality, uh, biblical sexual ethics, things like that. And if, and if um, Jesus didn't really die, it means you're not really that bad. It doesn't really matter. Right? That what you need is a kind of new knowledge. And so John is writing to combat that, because though it's very interesting, it's just not Christian. It's not Christian. Okay, so let's continue. He says, but the anointing that you received... From him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but his anointing teaches you about everything, and is true and is no lie. Just in case there was confusion, it's true and is no lie. Just as it has been taught you, abide in him. Okay? Now, on the surface, what this sounds like, and some of you may be thinking this, right? What this sounds like is that John is saying that the individual Christian, in his or her own fount of knowledge, that, that there's something that we kind of understand what is true and what isn't, just intuitively, that each of us we kind of get this feeling probably la- like in the gut. Like, I don't know, that just doesn't sit right. And that that is then becomes our sieve through which we uh, test what is true and what isn't. That's what it sounds like, right? Well, we have to remember something that we said last week. Remember, I mentioned the fact last week that if you're from a church background, you probably see the word anointing and think automatically either of oil, which is weird, or the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so, um, th- thus, this means that what what he might be saying is that you have been given the Holy Spirit who just kind of helps you know what's true and what isn't internally. Now, if you are a Christian, you have been given the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit does illumine truth to you, but that is not what he is talking about. Think with me. John is saying, look, you got all knowledge, you don't need a teacher. But like, more than 75% of this letter is teaching. So, he's like, you don't need a teacher, but I'm just going to keep teaching you because I'm a, like, what, what is that? That has nothing to do with what he's saying. So, what's he talking about? Over and over again, what John tells these Christians is to keep going back to what you already had. Go back to the gospel. Go back to the Bible. Go back to God's word. So, this anointing is spiritual, it is of the Holy Spirit, but it is also God's word. That is what he is talking about, particularly the gospel. So, what does he mean that you don't need a teacher if he's teaching? Glad you asked. It's basically this. Because to get this, we need to understand what they were hearing. What they were hearing was this. I know what you heard from these apostles. I know it was good. It was fine. These these early Christian leaders, that, that sounds great. But what you really need to know about Jesus is something only I can teach you. And I got it from a special revelation. He gave it to me. I have special knowledge. The Bible, you see, it can only get you but so far. But I can get you the whole way because of this great knowledge I have. You see, you with me? You see how that works? These teachers are coming around saying, The gospel is not enough. You need my teaching too. You need a teacher beyond what you've gotten. You need to be taught by me. And John is saying, No, 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 no. Everything you need, you have in the gospel. Everything you have. Or everything you need, you have in God's word. That is what is true. Now, here's why this matters. If you're a Christian here this morning, everything you need, the, the, the letter, one of Peter's letters, um, he says that everything we need for life and godliness is found in God's word. Second Peter 1. So this is important. You don't need new teaching, greater revelation, or whatever. God has given you all that you need for salvation. The gospel is enough. God's word is sufficient for you. You don't need to hear some kid's description of going to heaven and back, which, by the way, never seems to jive with the Bible's description of what that is like, interestingly enough. So you don't need to hear that kid's description of this, three minutes of this or whatever, to somehow confirm your faith. The Bible does that. God's word is enough, okay? Okay? But John concludes this statement uh, with this. Just as it is taught you, abide in him. Okay? So let's look at urgent abiding. That idea of abiding in him. That is it. All that we need is to abide in Jesus. But then he adds this statement of urgency. Look down at verse 28. He says, And now, little children, abide in him so so when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. Now, this, this passage makes very little sense unless we understand the whole message of the Bible uh, because shame and confidence doesn't seem to speak to us a whole lot. See, the Bible teaches that all of us, not a few of us, but every one of us, uh, is, is sinful to our core. Now, I say that and some of us are thinking, Rick, I'm not that bad. What that does not mean is that we are as bad as we could be. That's not what that means right? It's very clear. You look around the room. Y'all clean up really nice. You're not as bad as you could be, and we all get that, okay? So let's just move that off the table. That's a caricature. That's not what it actually means. What it does mean is that sin has touched every aspect of our being. Every corner of our being, our heart, our mind, our soul, our will, everything has been touched and tainted by sin. And that sin, which I like to describe as independence from God, I think that helps us, can look very different because some of us kind of lean more towards the moralistic independence from God. I can be good apart from Him. I don't really need people. I can go to church enough and be clean enough. I don't need your status for me, God. I'm doing just fine on my own. Thank you very much. But some of us lean more towards the immoral immoral or irreligious side of independence where we're like, you know what, I don't really care what God says. I'm going to get mine, do what I want, get my satisfaction where I can. Thank you very much. The Bible says both are sinful. Like both are broken. The Apostle Paul, uh, in one of his letters, says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All means all. But this is why Jesus came. Jesus came to live perfectly for this guy over here who thinks he's doing all right because he's not. Because it's either perfect or not. Not various shades. Perfect or not. He's not perfect. And you're not perfect, and I'm not perfect. and we're Okay. But we need perfection. So Jesus came and lived perfectly. But he also died sacrificially for both guys. But this guy over here probably needs to hear it more. Because, uh, because for this guy, he's thinking that um, I'm never, I can never be good enough. I've always blown it. There's nothing in me that's good. And Jesus says, I died for that. It's enough. So Jesus came to live perfectly, died sacrificially to accomplish our salvation. And when we place our faith in him... We are united to him so that his work becomes our work. In other words, Jesus does all the work. Christianity is about Jesus doing all the work and us just kind of riding his coattails. You got that? Now here's where this connects with the stuff that John is saying. Jesus uh, ascended into heaven. He, raised, he was raised from the dead. He ascended into heaven to rule until a time in which he will return to finally deal with sin. I don't know if you notice, the world's kind of messed up. God didn't want it this way. He doesn't want it this way. Jesus will come one day. He will set things right. He'll wipe away tears. He'll deal with sin. He'll make all things right and judge the earth. And that's what John is talking about. Having confidence or shrinking back in shame when that happens. What will your attitude be when you see him come back to make all things right? But notice what he says. That confidence doesn't come through working hard. That confidence doesn't come through being moral. That confidence doesn't come from being loving or whatever. It comes through abiding, being near Jesus. This is important because Christianity never, never encourages us to have confidence in ourselves. Never. It is always to be in Jesus. But shame is also linked to whether or not we're abiding in Jesus. You see, and this is a great little passage that, that Paul talks about, that our lives are hidden in Christ with God. In other words, to, to not abide in Jesus when he appears means that we become exposed. I'll just think about that for a second. That even those of you, those of us, right, who, who clean up real nice, look really nice on the outside, we know what we've done. We know what we think. We know what we say, even if it's mumbling under our breath. We know those things that we don't want other people to know. What John is here talking about is that when Jesus comes back, that stuff suddenly comes to light. Do we shrink back in shame? Or are we hidden with Christ and covered? This is important, so listen close. Christianity, ultimately, is not about what you have done or what you haven't done. Okay? Don't don't check out, because this is important. You've blown it, and so have I. We've blown it. Irreparably. Can't fix it. Blown it. Done. Some of us have done this with gusto. Others of us, not so much. But it isn't about you. (laughs) Know this. The Bible teaches clearly. That apart from Jesus, every one of us would be ashamed before God. Because if, if the standard is perfection, anything less than that just doesn't matter. But by faith in Jesus, we are made clean. See, by faith in Jesus, our sins are completely forgiven and dealt with. So His coming doesn't produce shame. It produces joy. Finally! Finally! Finally, he's coming back to make things right and I don't have to deal with this anymore. I don't have to grieve anymore, be hurt anymore, or do the hurting. Finally. See, we have confidence. We're to have confidence in his coming, not because of how good we've been, but how good we know he is. How great he is. John's point here is that this is a reality. This coming again will happen. So will you have confidence or shame in his coming? And that is all wrapped up in whether or not you have faith in Jesus. Now comes the, the kicker of this passage. Look down at verse 29. John says, If you know he's righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Okay, So this, is, this can be a little confusing. Let's, uh, let's hit the end of this verse before I get to the beginning. What does John mean when he says someone has been born of God? And if you were here just a few minutes ago, and all of you were, because I didn't see anyone else walk in, you heard me say no one's born a Christian. So what does it mean to be born of God? Well, this is, it, what it doesn't mean is natural birth. Okay, this, this is talking about what Jesus was saying in John 3 when he told this dude by the name of Nicodemus who was a, a teacher in Israel. And Nicodemus sought him out, wanted to know, hey, I heard you're this really good teacher, so teach me some stuff. And Jesus says, um, all right, here's one. Unless you're born again, you can't see the kingdom of God, understand it, or enter it. And Nicodemus' reaction was like yours. He went, what? What are you talking about? That phrase, born again, has a lot of cultural baggage, doesn't it? We're in the Bible Belt. We're in the valley. Like, it has a lot of cultural baggage. Um, here's what this is talking about. Remember I said that we are broken to our core? That, that, it's t- that sin has tainted every aspect of our being. That means that none of us, none of us, on our own, can somehow produce faith. Somehow return to dependence on God. We are all bent towards independence. Jesus would say it this way, that, that our hearts are bad. It's not just that we do bad things, that our hearts are bad. That The fact that we do bad things is because our hearts are bad, not the other way around. So being born again is speaking to being made new, to having that heart replaced. Replaced with one that can have faith, that isn't independent fundamentally anymore. Okay, you with me? So in other words, there aren't two kinds of Christians. Regular ones and then born-again ones who are all crazy. Right? There's only one kind of Christian. If you were born again, you were a Christian. If you were not born again, Jesus says you can't enter the kingdom or see it or understand it. To be born again is the same thing as being a Christian. So working backwards, we have to deal with what it means to practice righteousness. Because he says, if, if you've, you're practicing righteousness, we know you're born of him. So righteousness is a churchy word, but in the Bible it means keeping promises. It means keeping your promises. Being faithful. Being faithful. John is saying to be faithful to God, listen to me, being faithful to God requires being born again. Did you hear that? Make sure you don't reverse it. Because what he didn't say is to get born again, you have to be faithful to God. It's not what he said. What he said was, if you're going to be faithful to God, it's impossible unless you're born again. In other words, what we have here is another one of John's tests for us. You know that if someone is faithful towards God which does not mean keeping their nose clean. It means repenting of their sins and turning again to Jesus. It means uh, trusting in him. He says, if they're faithful towards God, you know that they're born again. If they aren't, if they refuse to repent of their sins, if they refuse to move towards Jesus, then they prove they aren't born again. They prove you're not a Christian. It's that simple. I know we don't like John's like polarities. It's either this or this. But it's either this or this. It's just what he says. What, tro- what John is trying to get across in this section is namely this. The Christian faith is simple, but it is dense. The gospel is the truth. We don't need any new spiritual information, but it will take us a lifetime to apply it fully to our lives. That's what he's trying to get across, okay? So let me kind of bring that home and kind of make that a little more pointed for us, if I can. All right. In light of all that, let's... let's uh, Let's bring this home with keeping close to the Pathmaker. What does it mean to abide in Jesus? Abiding in Jesus is like a huge part of this passage. As a matter of fact, it's kind of central to the passage. So we better get what he's talking about. Because we tend to think that means doing good things. Being good people. Obeying. Not doing bad stuff. But abiding isn't so much the language of obedience as it is the language of relationship. Relationship. It's the language of relationship. And you know how relationships work, right? Because you have them. They aren't one time things that you move on from, and we don't do them perfectly. The language here is the same. In, in the original, I don't know if most of you probably know, the Bible wasn't written in English. It was originally, at least this part was written in Greek. The, the word abide is actually in a kind of uh, form that's progressive. It means something that you continually have to keep coming back to, an ongoing reality. Abiding in Jesus is not rocket science, but it's also not a simple act that you're one and done. Abiding in Jesus means continually repenting and trusting in Him. That sounds simple, right? Yeah, not so much. If sin were simply doing bad things, it would be easy. Just stop it. Right? There was this great sketch in the Bob Newhart show a million years ago, however long it was, when, when he did the just stop it routine. right? He, they, he pays 50 bucks for the first five seconds of therapy and everything else, and she comes in and she tells some fear of something. He says, stop it! And then he just, that's it. Uh, it's, it's not just that. If sin were simply doing bad things, it would be that easy. But unfortunately, sin is about our hearts. Which means that what we need to repent of is not just what we do, but what's driving what we do. You see, to, to repent of being a gossip, to repent of triangulating with people, bringing other people into a conflict that you're having and getting them to go talk to so-and-so. Like, we're all in middle school, but it happens because... We never really grow up. Uh, the, but to repent of being a gossip and triangulating with people is one thing. You just stop it. But repenting of why? Maybe it's because we want power over relationships. We like telling things about others because then people will look at us better than they'll look at them. Maybe it's because we like to have the, be the one in the know. Maybe it's because we like to uh, keep ourselves safe in that way. So we can stop gossiping but we will find other ways to do those very things. And we'll just move on. Abiding in Jesus will mean continually revisiting where we are seeking life apart from God. What are you hoping is going to make you right today? Is it your moral checklist? Your bank account? The fact that you can navigate a crowd well and everyone loves you until they don't? doing whatever you want whenever you want to do it. It's not just what we do, it's what's going on in our hearts that we need to repent of. Often, for church folk, and most of us in here are church folk, it's going to be repenting of your righteousness. Your morality and your churchiness that you use to keep God at a distance because I don't really need you that much. I'm doing okay. I haven't slipped up in in, in weeks now. I'm doing great. I don't really need you. Here's one I've learned about myself this week. I hate that I have needs. I hate it. I hate it. I despise it. I don't want to have needs. So what I end up doing is I find myself filling those needs in ways that I probably shouldn't, or I get angry because other people aren't meeting my needs. And so what repentance is going to mean for me, and maybe this is the same with you, is going to mean admitting to God that I'm needy because I'm human. I don't know if you knew this. I am human. When you become a pastor, you don't somehow transcend humanity. I'm a human. And I was created needy because I need Him. It means admitting the arrogance and fear in me that wants to be more than that and instead returning to Jesus for those needs. And it's not a one time thing. You will never outgrow the gospel, you will never outgrow it. It's not just the entry point to the Christian life, but it's the means by which we live it. And if it isn't, then you're just chasing moralism or license. Has to be in the gospel. So that's keeping close to the path maker. Lastly, I want to talk about knowing the path. Because you see, John is clear that you don't need any new teaching. You don't need new teaching. You don't need the latest book from so and so or your best life now or whatever's going on. You don't don't need that so much as you need to stick with what you first received. But he assumes that you know what you first received. So let me give you a couple ways that we know that path. First, if you're a Christian here this morning, and you're, you're trusting in Jesus, like that's just, you're not even having to argue about that, you need to be able to articulate the gospel. Right? Because if that's, what, if that's the means by which we're saved, we, we, we believe the gospel, we trust in Jesus, we're saved, you need to be able to articulate the gospel. If, if it's the governing principle of the Christian life, then it's kind of pretty important that we get it. So when I first became a Christian in college, we memorized this little booklet. Some of you were there because you memorized it with me. Uh, it's called The Four Spiritual Laws. It was yellow and awful. Uh, on the back table, we have another little booklet. It's called The Story. It kind of lays out the gospel for you. If, if a non-Christian friend approached you and asks what is the gospel, and you can't answer, then please pick that up and read it and read it again. And reread it. You need to be able to articulate the gospel, not just for others, but for yourself. Second, you need to know the word. Remember I said that that anointing that he's talking about is the word of God. Most of us, though, if we're being honest with ourselves and with each other, our knowledge of the word doesn't go beyond a few verses that we may have heard a number of years ago or that are on a coffee mug that we have or something we read in somebody's blog. But to actually read the Bible is not something we do. Right? Look, this is not popular, but we need to get this. The Bible is the sole authority in the life of the Christian. It's not the Bible plus something else. It's the Bible. That is where we get our life of faith and practice. It is sufficient for us. It is clear in what we need to get. And it is necessary for us to grow. Yeah. Psalm 1, which is right in the middle of your Bible, um, one of the psalms, which is like the songbook of God's people. Psalm 1 says that the one who meditates on, which is another way of saying thoughtfully considers throughout the day, the the one who meditates on God's word day and night is like a tree planted by streams of water. In other words, well-nourished and fruitful. (laughs) Now, some of you, as I say this, are starting to feel that tinge of guilt. Wells up, starts back here maybe. Comes forward. Um, and what you're thinking, because you come up with excuses, what you're saying is, I don't, Rick, I just don't have time for that. My life is so busy. I do not have time to read the Bible. Listen, you and I both know that isn't true. You will make time for what's important to you. Because you see, those of us who have no time seem to always have enough time to catch up on our shows or to play on that old Nintendo that we found at the yard sale or to scroll endlessly through everyone's Facebook page looking for some new nugget You make time for what's important to you. If you never engage in, in regular Bible reading or Bible study, I'm gonna challenge you to that this week. Some of you uh, took us up on the offer to buy this tool that we have called the Community Bible Reading Journal and Plan. If you have that, I'm just gonna encourage you to use that this week. If you don't have that, maybe you've never even maybe you're non Christian, you never even thought about reading the Bible. Give me four days. Just give me four days. Like twenty minutes. If you don't have one of those CBRs, if you're in the CBR, use that. But if you don't, just give me one chapter in John's Gospel a day for four days this week. Let's just see how it goes. See if you don't have time for it. Read that. Pray about it. Think about it. Maybe write down some questions. If you have questions about it, write them down. Call me up. Send me an email. We'll go out to lunch. Grab a drink. We'll talk about it. it would be awesome. Just give me 20 minutes a day for four days this week. You may not understand all of it, and if you don't have time, dig a little deeper. You, you might be able to look around in that passage and, and figure it out. If you don't know how to do that, we can help you. But let me tell you this. It's very difficult to grow in a relationship with someone that you don't know anything about. And the Bible is God's self-revelation. It's where he talks about himself. As a matter of fact, it's the only place where we can actually grow in our knowledge of him. All right, let me wrap up because we're going long. Christianity can be maddening. It can be maddening because it seems too easy. Trust in Jesus, and you're right before God. Okay, and then, and then what? No, you didn't hear me. Trust in Jesus, and then you're right before God. I know, but then what? But then what seemed easy gets deeper. Right? It continues to show us our need. It's like you're looking over a, a body of water, and you're like, well, I can, I can cross that. It's no big deal. And you start stepping in, and it is. It's really shallow. And then all of a sudden, you're up to your waist, and you're like, wow, this is a lot deeper than I thought it was. And then all of a sudden you're in over your head. Because the longer you become a Christian, it's not that the gospel becomes less and less applicable, it's that you need to apply it more and more. Different areas. Growing in our understanding of our neediness and, our, and, and His provision for us. Because it continues to show us the depth of Jesus' work for us. It leads us more and more into relationship with Him. But even in all of that, even in all of that depth, the way we navigate it never changes. It is always repentance and faith. It never turns into, yeah, yeah, that's the old stuff. That's the milk, but now I need the meat. Tell me what to do. I'm telling you what to do. Repent again and trust in Jesus. It is always faith in Jesus. It is always less of us and more of Him. And it is always delighting in the one by grace who is delighted in us. Would you pray with me? Father, uh, I ask that you would press this into our hearts, help us to know it and to, to abide in you. Lord, there there's some of us here this morning who have never uh, trusted in Jesus. We, have, we are distant from him, alienated from him, don't even really want to take part in him at all. And so, Lord, I, I pray that you would, uh, if that's where we are, that you would let, um, you would by your spirit come in and create faith where there was none. You did it with me. You did it with all my friends in here, or a lot of them in here. And so, Lord, I ask that you would do that again. For those of us who are constantly looking for the next big thing, I pray that you would help us return again to the gospel and see that it is not elementary. It is the full curriculum. It is the full scope and sequence of the Christian life. And so lead us deeper into it. We may grow in our knowledge of you and of ourselves And then go into a world that is needy to hear of you and proclaim the gospel to any who would hear. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.